Located in the central flyway, Port Aransas, Texas boasts hundreds of native and migrating species with a gorgeous island backdrop. With six sites along the Great Texas Coastal Birding Trail, the island offers up-close vantage points to marvel at the magnificent migrating birds that consider Port A the ideal rest stop. Get your tickets to the Whooping Crane Festival and celebrate their annual return to their wintering habitat. Go to visitportaransas.com birding to plan your visit. Hello and welcome to the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. I am your host, Nate Swick. It is the end of the month, which is time for this month in birding. But before we get started on that, I have a couple things to note. First, registration for the Rio Grande Birding Festival is open. The festival starts on November 8th, 2023 in Harlingen, Texas. We will be there. By that, I mean the ABA, not me. In particular, sorry, but we will have a booth at the trade show and you'll be able to say hello, get merch, get coffee, all that business. It will be fun. Please join us. Link to register in the show notes. Second, it's been a few days since I recorded this panel discussion. And in that time, there has been some new and actually kind of sad news about a topic we discuss this month. So we talked a good deal about the American flamingos in Pennsylvania, in particular, the one in rehab in the context of what should be done with it once it has recovered and needs to be released. Unfortunately, that discussion is now moot as the bird died while it was being transferred from the rehab center to a zoo for additional help. The zoo was seen, not incorrectly, as the right place for this bird as it continued its recovery path, but it's hard to foresee what could cause stress to an injured bird. And in in the end, that transfer was too much. So listen to the discussion with that in mind, knowing that you know now what we didn't know then. So that's that. Let's get to it. This month in birding with Jenny Duberstein, Nick Lund, Greg Neese, all after this week's Rare Birds. This is your Rare Bird Focus for the third week of September 2023. The American flamingo situation, already at mind-blowing levels of absurdity, reached new heights and new parts north this week as a flock of five American flamingos was discovered on the shores of Lake Michigan, north of Milwaukee, Wisconsin this week. Obviously a first state record and the farthest north record so far in this ongoing phenomenon. The birds were seen only for one afternoon, but shockingly, a photograph of what appeared to be the same flock of five came out the next day from the Wisconsin Dells far to the west in the middle of the state. So who knows where these birds are heading? I think many of us imagine that this flamingo situation was reaching its ebb, particularly as the Pennsylvania birds have taken off. But it is apparent that there are still lost flamingos scattered across the east and who knows where they could turn up. The Flamingo News overshadowed another find this week that could easily go down as one of the best of the year in the ABA area. What appears to be a Pollas's bunting photographed in Squamish, British Columbia, just north of the city of Vancouver, is a first for the province. There are about 10 previous records of this migratory Imberizid sparrow for the ABA area. All have been from Alaska. Other firsts of note for the period, a royal turn was recorded on the St. Croix River near Stillwater, Minnesota, where it is a first for the state and the farthest north inland record for this predominantly warm water species. And an apparent western flycatcher on the coast of Mississippi would be a state first and joins a mini invasion of this species in the southeast that includes Alabama's second record and birds being discussed in Louisiana, Florida, and along the Texas coast. Those are the highlights for this past week, but for the full list, check out the ABA Rare Bird Alert on Fridays at aba.org slash RBA. You can also follow along with all the Rare Bird news in our ABA Rare Bird Alert group on Facebook and in ABA community. It is the end of the month, which means it's time for this month in birding once again. And while it took right up to the very end this time around for reasons that will become clear in a bit uh, to put together this panel, we've got a panel of ABA friends and staff here to talk about the beautiful fall season, every birder's favorite time of year. Uh, some still say spring because they don't know any better, but it's fall. Everyone knows it's fall. Mm. Let's get right down to it. Do, do you have opinions already? Are we going to? No? no, I agree. Okay. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. (laughs) Let's get right down to it, shall we? First up in alphabetical order, it is a conservation superstar with Sonoran Joint Venture and quite possibly the most awarded panelist we call upon for this (laughs) podcast segment from Tucson, Arizona. It's Jenny Duverstein. Hello, Jenny. Hello. How's everybody doing today? Doing fantastic in this beautiful fall weather here in the Southeast, which I'm sure you 
you are not able to appreciate in, in Arizona Listen, quite as much. Listen, it is beautiful fall weather here in Tucson, too, which means I think our high temperature is going to only be in the upper 90s today oh, instead of the triple digits. So we are, we are reveling in, in the cooler temps. <laughs> That's dining al fresco weather. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, next up from as yet Flamingoless, Maine. Uh, you know him as the birdist. It is our friend Nick Lund. Welcome back, Nick. Great to be back. As yet is right. We're looking out every second for these flamingos that get over here. They've been in every other state yeah, in the union exactly right. except ours. It's a flamingo summer, flamingo fall. Um, and stepping in last minute to save us from a flamingo-induced emergency, it is the ABA's webmaster, my What's This Bird Live co-host, an ABA community authority from Chicago. It's our friend Greg Neese. Thanks for being there in a pinch, Greg. Good afternoon, and it's my pleasure. I'm sorry to interrupt. Can I just say that I love that we live in a world where there can be flamingo-induced emergencies? <laughs> right. Of all the other emergencies you could possibly have, flamingo-induced are probably the, the most uh, reasonably accommodated, I suppose. Um, for those who are wondering what we're talking about, uh, we were originally going to have uh, Dexter Patterson on as the uh, third panelist here, um, but a, a flock of flamingos showed up in Milwaukee and uh, Actually, Dexter failed. Fort Washington, where yeah, is that? It's, it's nearby, it's, right? It's, 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 well, it's like maybe an hour north. Oh, well, in any case, close enough uh, yeah. for jazz. And they uh, and he, he bailed. Uh, he will be back next month. We'll get him again. I, I let him go because uh, how often do you get flamingos in Wisconsin? Um, and who knows? Never what, often. Never, often. never. Yeah, I can't imagine it happening again. I can't imagine one flamingo showing None up. None often. One five. Yeah. And that actually uh, brings me to uh, my first piece of news that I wanted to talk about with you. It is flamingo. It is a flamingo related news item. It is flamingo season. Of course, we're all very aware of the incredible flight of flamingos this fall in the wake of Hurricane Idalia. Um, they are they have been seen all over the place. They are still being seen in a lot of different places, which is absolutely uh, wild to me. Uh, they got as far north. Well, I would say as far north as Pennsylvania now that there's birds even farther north. But the Pennsylvania birds have been a subject of a, a little bit of uh, drama recently. There were two of them in a pond in south central Pennsylvania. One of them had a bit of a run-in with a common snapping turtle, not a thing that flamingos generally have to deal with, I imagine, in the Caribbean. Uh, but nonetheless, that bird was captured, taken into rehabilitation where it was treated for some uh, wounds, some flesh wounds on its leg, which left the other flamingo all by its lonesome. Uh, until recently, when it it left as well. So we're not exactly sure where these flamingos go. We're not exactly sure what's going to happen to this flamingo that is still in rehabilitation, that is still being taken care of until it is ready to fly again. Um, I know this is a question that we've had a lot of times. What do you do with a vagrant that goes into rehab? Do you release it at the place where you picked it up? Do you try and get it back to its uh, native habitat? Do you do something in between? I think it's a question that we're going to have to deal with very soon with this uh, flamingo. So what do we do with the Pennsylvania flamingo? W what's going to happen to it? It's such a tricky question. We had a situation yes. here in Tucson. So we also, hurricanes on the Pacific coast sometimes send um, seabirds, especially mm -hmm. inland, and we get them in Tucson. And there was, I think it was a red-billed tropic bird yeah. that showed up in Tucson, like on the ground, injured. Somebody gathered it up, brought it to a rehabilitator who, you know, you wouldn't expect rehabilitators in Tucson to have a lot of experience with, with seabirds. <laughs> and they enough. actually contacted somebody in San Diego and transported the bird to San Diego where it was rehabilitated and released. And that feels like, you know, it's not that far away. Mm -hmm. You can stick it in a car. You can drive it there. Um, obviously, releasing a tropic bird in the middle of the Sonoran Desert, like you can guess what the fate of that bird would be versus yeah. the flamingo. What would be which... the point of rehabilitation if you're just going right. to release exactly. it in, uh, in the middle of the desert? Yeah. Flamingo found some habitat. Um, I don't know. Rehabilitation in general is such a yeah. tricky thing, right? Yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll, I will say first that I think this is an appropriate time for rehabilitation, I guess. You know, a lot of people, when, when vagrant birds show up, are sort of sometimes they're quick to want to capture yes. the bird and, and rehabilitate. And this is different than that, right? Yeah. This was an injured bird. Yeah. And so the fact that it's in rehabilitation, I think, is, you know, fine. And I'm, gl I'm glad it's getting help. You know, in terms of where to release it, this, this bird is clearly having a tough time. It's, <laughs> a, it's a bit of a, you know, it got lost, number one. 
it stepped on a turtle number two <laughs> i think it needs some help and i think we should probably bring it down to florida or somewhere because um it's uh i think it ne- i think it needs a little charity a little in its life yeah yeah I, I think that's that's without question what is going to happen um mm. simply because public opinion won't allow it to go any other way yeah um and i agree with nick i think that's the right call so like we, you know, we, we got a, um, an injured up in Northern Illinois, we got an injured purple gallinule and, mm-hmm. um, clearly way out of range, but they just released it where they found it or nearby mm-hmm. because, you know, the people who really cared about that was a bunch of birders in this <laughs> like case, the spotted rail in Texas, in this case, there's a whole lot of people that care very much yeah. about what happens to this flamingo and it goes way beyond the birding world. So, yeah, I, I think the proper call here is drive it down someplace where, you know, St. Mark's or someplace where flamingos are hanging out and let it go. So I have a I have a very specific uh, suggestion for people who might be listening and might be in charge of this flamingo. One, um, I think it's interesting that it went to a, to a rehabilitator. I, I trust that a rehabilitator in Ohio, in Pennsylvania would know what to do with this bird. Flamingos are very common in captivity in zoos throughout the world. And so I'm sure that the they they know what to do with flamingos. They know how to take care of it. And from the photos that they've shown, from the that the rehabilitation center has shown, uh, the bird is being very well taken care of. It's got it was in this like kind of funky belly sling where its feet could like dangle down there and would mm. hold it up so its its leg could feel properly. It's this flamingo is getting a five star service. It is doing very well. Um, I I agree that they should take it somewhere where there are flamingos. It just so happens that there is a place where there are flamingos not all that far away. They should drive it to North Carolina. We have a flock of about 16. It's growing. There were about 14. Now there are approximately 16 flamingos there. We think that they're probably these lost birds that are coming to the coast and finding a flock of flamingos and putting in with them and just kind of hanging out with them. Uh, They seem to be doing well. Obviously, it's going to be getting cold in Pennsylvania pretty soon in the next two, three weeks. So they they, they can't just release it in Pennsylvania. They should take it down to the Outer Banks release that bird near where the big flock of flamingos are. And I guarantee it's going to find that big flock of flamingos. And as far as we know, those flamingos all came from the same place in the Yucatan. Um, it probably knows them it was like neighbors, I guess. So maybe they, um, maybe they put in our flamingo flock has been doing really well. They just kind of chill and sleep and eat all day. They all seem healthy. They all seem relatively happy. So yeah, bring, bring your Pennsylvania flamingos to us. And we will uh, we will put them with our with our flamingo flock. It will join our flamingo family, and then they can go wherever they go another month or so. You know, in past in a past life, I was uh, uh, I worked at Lincoln Park Zoo in Chicago for a long time, mm-hmm. and um, they have a flock of Chilean flamingos. Mm-hmm. And um, as you'd expect, they're very hardy. Uh, but something something happened to one of them. I I don't. There are snapping turtles and other turtles in the pond where they are, but mm. something happened to one of them where its leg or part of its leg had to be amputated. Mm-hmm. And they, you know, those those green sort of corrugated um, tomato steaks. Yes. Yes. I have like a pile of them. In my yeah. Backyard. So they yeah. used <laughs> they used one of those as a prosthetic. And and named it Rebar, named the flamingo Rebar, <laughs> and it got along just fine. Yeah. It got along just fine. Um, there, yeah. So just to sort of reiterate, they are hardy birds that yeah. they're much hardier than they appear. I've I've certainly seen shorebirds uh, that are missing feet uh, for various reasons uh, on the beach, and they seem to be doing. It. it happens all the time. Flamingos right? only need one leg anyway, don't they? That's right. Yeah, practically. But they, yeah, <laughs> but maybe he's a lefty and he only wants to stand on. Yeah. Yeah, who knows? We'll have to we all got to adjust. Yeah, that's you right. know, you know, back back in the back in the the era of non photographing birding in the seventies and eighties, um, I got my lifer curlew sandpiper at Lake Calumet in the south side of Chicago, in a pond that was dropping fast, and while we were looking at this bird and and the other shorebirds, there were like eight or ten snapping turtles, and you could see <laughs> their backs just moving along, and while we were watching, like just boom, there goes a stilt sandpiper. Bonk. There goes something else. And these snapping turtles were dropping shorebirds like every few minutes. It was crazy. Oh, man. Mm. This one's got a little big for his britches, though. He's going yeah. after a flamingo. That's significantly larger. <laughs> I wish it well. I want to know how it co- comes out. And I hope yeah. it 
because all right, I think North Carolina is a good idea. Might as well stop in Maine on the way down. You know, it's just <laughs> a straight shot. Pick it back up again. Yeah. yeah, just pick it back up. See how it does. Test it out. Yeah. Resume normal activities. Yeah, uh, and then you know, <laughs> I think they absolutely should put one of those geo trackers on it. Um, get the get the folks at Cellular Tracking Technology to um, to get a flamingo harness ready and put it on there, and let's see where this bird goes for sure. Well, you know, movements about vagrant birds are always incredibly interesting, and I don't, you know, it doesn't, it, it's not common to tag them right mm-hmm. um and so this would be you know would be really interesting to see if it meets those it flies from somewhere else to meet the north carolina birds or otherwise sort of makes its way back or what happens to it yeah that'd be cool i hope they do that so uh nate and you guys uh you've no doubt been following the uh the yank invasion in the uk the last week it's it's quite something. I mean, talk about uh, as as the thing we're discussing mega over overload. Um, mm-hmm. It it really is. Have, have you guys been following this? Yeah, I've seen uh, some of the birds pop up. They've had an absolute unreal fall for American land birds in in you know the UK and Ireland. It's been it started with a bunch of cliff swallows, and now it's exactly you know, they're getting warblers, they're getting bobolinks, they're getting uh, alder flycatcher. It's 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 wild. And, they got black and white warbler, Tennessee warbler, Baltimore Oriole, Blackburnian warbler, alder flycatcher, magnolia yeah. warbler. It's like a good day here. It's like a good fall day here. <laughs> <laughs> and bobolink. And bobolink, they're like, ah, another bobolink. Another bobolink. <laughs> the, yeah. Maggie, the Maggie is creating quite the stir. The Maggie is surprising because compared to those other birds, it is not as long distance a migrant no. as like Blackburnian warbler or... Um, bobolink for sure. That's a very long distance migrant. Even older flycatcher, the, which goes down to South America, like Mag- Magnolia warbler, only goes down to Central America, like the Yucatan and and right. Northern Central America. Like that bird does not go far. That's not one I would have expected to turn up in this flight. But I guess you know maybe it's the hurricane that Hurricane Lee that kind of shot through there um, and pushed well, everything over. I, I think it's I don't know. It's, it's kind of it's it's there was um, on one of the one of the the Twitter. Or whatever we're calling that place these Twitter. days, Twitter. Um, Twitter. <laughs> well, yeah, I'm calling it Twitter. <laughs> um, there, there was a name that that one of the um, one of the British birders used for the the weather pattern, and in particular the wind um, mm-hmm. that delivered these birds. And they had a graphic that showed um, basically like this this perfect funnel of wind coming from Newfoundland. Yeah. And just going straight across the British Isles, uh, yeah. I mean, you look at where where they predicted the birds would land, and boy, they came pretty close. Yeah, the whole um, the whole west coast of Ireland is like pockmarked with really amazing birds. That was they've got a cool map. The link is in the show notes. It's a, a website called RareBirdAlert.co.uk. Um, I mean, they've got like a bunch of cliff swallows there, and Baltimore Oriole, and it's also interesting to me that it's the west coast of England too. So they, yeah. they a lot yeah. of these birds shot right over Ireland and landed. You know, I'm always interested Wales, in, in yeah. understanding how that, uh, or is it Wales or England? Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, look at me, geography major over here. <laughs> um, uh, it's always interesting to me, you know, think about birds like this who are clearly off track that don't just come down to the first spot they see, or, or yeah. how that, how yeah. it. How, you know what they're thinking or how that works when they are just cruising along um to end up you know that that cliff swallows all the way in you know western um you know west of or east of london i guess um, yeah so it's yeah. pretty wild well you know it's interesting when you look at uh, and and i don't know my geography that well either in that part of the world but if you look at the channel that separates ireland um from great britain and that that terminates in the isle of man um it, it almost looks like these birds got kind of swept up in a southwest to northeast pattern um, mm-hmm. because they hit the same coast. So they hit sort of the southwest coast uh, on on both yeah. islands. And, um, you know, except for one except for one cliff swallow. And of course, cliff swallows are powerful flyers. Yeah, they're all kind of in the same position. So it, it looks like, you know, the, 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 the wind delivered them in kind of a predictable pattern. Well, one thing I've seen as sort of a fallout from this, there's been some pictures on Twitter of the crowds who are coming to see, especially the Magnolia <laughs> Warbler. Yeah. You know, I, I, I do want to defend the crowds a little bit. You know, I, I I get uncomfortable in large groups of birders looking at a vagrant just like anybody else. But 
uh, and uh, but the uh, it seems like the reaction on Twitter has been you know like God kill me to ever be in a place like this with this <laughs> many birders, you know I see a lot of joy and happiness and and excitement. You know I know that feeling of chasing a a, a bird and how how fun. I mean that's so fun. And that's what I one of the things I love the most about birding is you know like Dexter, you're sitting there getting ready for a podcast, and then all of a sudden you get this alert that says you got to go see these. They're fl- flamingos for goodness yeah. sake uh, in Wisconsin. You go and I, that that sort of disruption is what one of the things I love the most about birding. And I, and I, that's what I get out of those pictures more than, you know, how annoying it is to be in, in a big crowd. I, I completely agree. Why do you think it is that the, that sort of culture is so different in the UK than it is in the U S I mean, I, my, my sense is that the U S is so spread out that, you know, there's no way that you can be just a, a size thing. Yeah. yeah. That's what I, that's what my sense is. And you know, there UK doesn't have a ton as many breeding birds as we do in North America in the U S and Canada. So vagrants are like such a big, big deal there as, as it would be on any islands. Islands are always big, absolutely you know, vagrant magnets. But some of the, I can like the Amazon Kingfisher and the, the yeah. um, Rufus neck wood rail. Like there were, I can think of experiences in the U S where giant crowds gathered and yeah, there was, it does happen sometimes. Yeah. Absolutely. A sense of community and, you know, people still talk, Oh yeah, I was there. I remember seeing you there or finding yourself in a picture of, you know, with 300 other people. So maybe not to the same extent, but it does happen sometimes. I remember when the Whiskered Turn showed up in um, Cape May at the Hawk Watch. Mm -hmm. And, you know, basically everyone had to go to the Hawk Watch to see the bird. And so, you know, all these people on this, and there's such a high concentration of birders in that part of the country anyway, that, you know, New Jersey, New York, Philadelphia, all those, all the, all those folks, the fact that it was sort of, you know, dead center in the middle of large birding communities made it, made it like, you know, sort of those UK experiences that I, I was there for that whiskered turn. Did you see that one? Oh, the one in the one in New Jersey. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, there you go. Yeah, I, I, I wasn't. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I was. I was there. I'm trying for to that get one in turn. And you know, I at, for me at, at least, uh, just speaking for myself, a, a big part of birding is all about community, and mm-hmm. it it's you know, if you know anything about my story, it was the birding community that that really did it for me um mm-hmm. as a kid and being part of this bigger thing and i love twitches i mean i love going out and i love finding all kinds of stuff but i love being part of a big crowd and birding is is as much a social thing as it is anything else um you know birders get together for birds and beers and now there's a thing called tweets and eats <laughs> and we like um, our rhyming but yeah i mean we, yeah but but you know it's uh it, it's it, and of course yeah there are people who are like you know what i just want to be out looking at birds leave me alone i get that um those people are not going to be twitchers <laughs> the vibes are so good at a big twitch the bird is showing well everybody's like it so is happy everybody's so happy and it's so which makes it a really fun thing to be a part of for sure you're all high five. And I remember when yeah. the, the boreal owls, when we had the last boreal owl invasion uh, around Duluth and we're all, there's a whole bunch of us tracking one bird in particular. We all finally got on it and it just gave us mm-hmm. crippling views. And it was picking off voles that were popping out of the snow and the, on the pavement. I got pictures of this and people are hugging and high fiving and just having such yeah. a good time. It's good stuff. Yeah. It's good stuff for sure. Yeah, well, well, you know, actually, this discussion of mega twitches in the UK leads pretty well into my story, uh, which is about a mega twitch in the US, in in particular, in large part, in my beloved home state of Maine. Um, there was a um, economic study released uh, about the impacts of the stellar sea eagle. This was from December uh, 2021 into to January 2022, uh, when the stellar sea eagle showed up first in in well, we've been showing up uh, a lot of places, but uh, twitchably in Massachusetts and then in Maine. Uh, these folks, uh, Brent Pease and Neil Gilbert and William Casola and Kofi Akamani, um, did a study about what are the economic impacts of this bird. And it's pretty cool. Um, you know, I think a lot of us think about this a lot. You know, um, you know when, when there are people traveling to see a rare bird, what does that mean for the local community? What does that mean for, um, you know, for, for people in the community? This crew estimated that over 2,100 folks came to visit the Stellar Sea Eagle in that period between December 2021 and January 2022. Um, 
the exact numbers that they estimate are between 20, uh, 2,115 and 22,645. And in total, those people probably spent between 584000 and or 730000 excuse me, um, which is a good chunk of change. Good chunk of change. Um, I'll tell you, my, my reaction reading this, and I spent a good amount of time with the Stellar Seagull. I was abandoned a Christmas bird count I was doing to drive down to Massachusetts um, to see it when it first showed up there. And then I abandoned whatever uh, other duties I had the December 31st to drive down to uh, five islands in Georgetown to see it when it was in Maine. And so I was among these throngs. I tell you, 2100 feels a little low. I got to say feels a little low. Are you going to reveal what you spent uh, chasing this bird? <laughs> well, I mean, I spent, you know, I drove two hours. Well, we drove as a crew four hours down to Massachusetts. And then I was in Maine. I drove a bunch of hours and ate food and, and paid for gas all along that way. And I know lots of others did. Um, you know, a lot of the methodology to estimate the the, the a number of people came from eBird reports um, mm-hmm. and also from sort of self, uh, from other birders on the scene, estimating how many people were there. Um uh, you know, I know a lot of people I talked to both when the bird was in 2022 and also 2023 when it returned to Maine. Um, a lot of these people aren't birders and are not on eBird um, and are not reporting the bird to eBird. It's it's a real sort of, you know, people who love nature and, um, you know, casual people who've heard about this in the news came down. And I, mm-hmm. I would have to assume that a lot of those people were not represented here. Um, they may yeah. not be the big money you know, they were not flying across the country to, to find this, but a lot of people went down. And so I, I think that that number, I, I would guess, is is low, if anything. Um, but uh, it was really sort of interesting quantification, I think, of, of the impact of a bird like this. And um, it'll be interesting to see what happens when and if this beautiful bird comes back to Maine this winter. It's still hanging around, right? It's still up in Newfoundland. Still, as of yesterday. Kind of yeah. Around. yeah. Wow. Yeah, I was seeing this. Yeah. I didn't really, I haven't been keeping up on it. <laughs> but yeah, it doesn't it's surprise like me. It's just pretty much at the opposite end of the earth in kind of the same habitat as it normally would be. Yeah, exactly. But, you know, it, I, I was, yeah. when you were talking there, Nick, I was thinking, well, anybody who's been to Biggest Week or the Rio Grande Valley Birding yeah. Festival knows the impact, the financial impact of birders on a, on a local community. We do spend money when we're, when we're out. Uh, especially and doing twitches and things like festivals. There's no shortage of studies looking at the economic impact of birding and wildlife based recreation and what what we call non-consumptive wildlife based Mm -hmm. recreation. So basically not hunting and fishing and angling. There's plenty of studies that show the economic impact of that also. But what I found so interesting about this study was that this is the economic impact of a single bird. Not like the idea of birding or mammal watching or herping or whatever, but this one bird had that much of an economic impact. It was kind of fascinating. Yeah. And and a couple other aspects, speaking as a Mainer, you know, who's been involved sort of, you know, with with the phenomenon around this bird is, you know, number one, this bird shows up in, uh, you know, Booth Bay Harbor part of the 2022 time. And then this, this past year, 2023, you know, in the summer is a very bustling tourist community in the winter is, is not, is a very quiet place. And so, um, the impact of this bird may be especially helpful given that this was otherwise sort of a downtime, um, in the, in the Booth Bay region. Um, the other thing I would mention is that, you know, I, I, I work for Maine Audubon in my day job and, we have a lot of new eyes on us. A lot of people asking us questions about where the bird is. A lot of people tuning into our website for updates and to our, you know, when we do webinars and things and there, uh, we haven't quantified it as far as I know, but there is certainly some positive economic impact for us because people, you know, are are looking to us for information and and we're helping out so many folks. And so um, that's not part of this study either, but that's something uh, that we really appreciate um, uh, from this bird. Yeah, something similar is happening with the flamingos as well, it feels like. I'd be curious if, you know, down the road, people are able to do some sort of economic impact study on on the places where these flamingos turned up, even for relatively brief periods of time, because I feel like something similar is happening. And certainly along those same lines, as you said, for Maine Audubon, I know that the ABA, Greg and I both have been doing, have done a number right. of interviews with media outlets talking about... Uh, about the flamingos and why they're here and, and what's going on with them. I, I talked to someone from Australia the other day about uh, they were even they're interested in this flamingo ph- phenomenon. It's a bit of a tongue twister there, but um, 
Yeah, it's the, it's it's amazing what birds yeah. can do, especially big charismatic birds like these. I did a I did a um, live TV in Brazil for the Stellar Seagull. I did a, a morning yeah. morning show in Nebraska. Um, you know, these are not normally outlets that Maine Audubon gets into. Let me just say it, say it that way. So, <laughs> yeah, I I, so yeah. it, it's been pretty fun. There is a, a study that Audubon Southwest put together, or they hired somebody to do this study a handful of years ago, looking at the economic impact of like water-based recreation in Arizona. So recreation on rivers and lakes and streams. And they found, and this is like, you know, everything from camping and fishing and hunting, but also wildlife watching and bird watching. And they found that sort of water-based recreation as an industry ranked above mining and golf in terms of total economic impact to the state. Um, so politicians would pay a little more attention mm, to yeah, that sort of thing. Yeah, it's a nice talk. A point. little more beholden to the miners mm. and well, maybe the golf developers. I don't know, <laughs> but I feel like we're. I mean, I know you all agree, but I feel like somebody ought to pay attention to well, this. Well, now we need to quantify awesome. the uh, opportunity loss by converting land into stupid golf courses. There you go. There you go. It's a net loss now. <laughs> or strip mines to be even sure. more overt. <laughs> yeah. But there's, there's probably more acres in golf courses than there are in strip mines. I don't know, but I don't know in Arizona. Probably, probably closer than you think in Arizona. <laughs> <laughs> that it, that might be a good segue into my article. I don't know. Yeah, let's do it, man. This is so natural. Okay, All so here's the segue. So... The challenge with um, you know quantifying the economic impact of a rare bird showing up is that you often don't have mm-hmm. baseline data to show you know what was the economy doing beforehand, you know, or you weren't necessarily studying measures of those particular things before the bird showed up. Um, And the paper that I am going to talk about, this was something that was published in the journal Biological Conservation um, just last month in August, was looking at the effects of um, white-tailed eagles on seabird productivity. And they they happen to be studying eagles and seabirds on this island in the Baltic. And I would try to pronounce the name of the island, but I would say it wrong. Stora, Stora Calso? What, uh, what country Can is somebody it? Somebody help me. Oh, um, Stora, if, it's, if it's Swedish, and it looks Swedish, it's Swedish it'd be yeah. like Stora Calso. There you go. Thank you. <laughs> Yeah, so they impressive. have been studying. I mean, all our, all our, our five Swedish mm-hmm. listeners are going to call in and say, "You did, did that's terrible, terrible." They're so embarrassed. But <laughs> yeah, correct. that's how I would pronounce. It. Old Sostora is like a uh, old. I think I want to say. But I spent some time in Sweden, and, and everyone there speaks English, so like it's really hard to practice Swedish. So that's neither here nor there. But uh, Stora Karlsson. All right, that's a- as you said, they had been studying seabirds and eagles on this island and in 2018 i think there was a nesting attempt by a pair they were unsuccessful and then um and there was tourism to this island like it was a a a known birding spot a small island birders would come to um take a look at the the seabird colonies and then the pandemic happened and so they had this and tourism stopped and they had this uh, experiment that was created by the situation in the world where they had pre-experiment uh, data, then they had data that they com- continued to collect during the pandemic, sort of looking at what happened to the eagle populations, what happened to the seabirds, and then they were able to collect more data once tourism began to return to the island. And basically what they found is that when tourists stopped coming, when birders stopped coming to this island, um, there was a seven-fold increase in the number of white-tailed eagles. And th- so they weren't breeding. They still weren't breeding at this point, or there was one pair that was attempting. Um, but seven times more eagles, you can imagine, would have an impact on um, the prey items of that eagle, um, of those eagles. And in this case, common mirrors were one of the the main species that were impacted by it. Um, And so, yeah, like eagle populations had been increasing on this island, but there was no negative impact on seabirds until COVID-19 happened and tourism stopped. And they saw um, a a dramatic, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but a a sort of a a significant, um, I think it's a better way of saying it, um, impact on common mirrors and seabirds. And they sort of had three hypotheses. And one was that 
um, as tourism returned to the island, eagle numbers would go down, seabird productivity would come back up to pre-pandemic levels. Their second hypothesis was that eagles would get used to people and there would just be more eagles and seabird populations would continue to be negatively impacted. Or the third hypothesis was that both eagles and the seabirds would habituate and they'd both figure out how to how to live together and there'd be birders and there'd be eagles and there'd be seabirds. And it's obviously it's only been I think they have one year maybe of post-pandemic data, maybe two. Um, but what they're seeing is that eagle numbers are decreasing as tourism begins to return mm. to the island. And the tourism numbers are still, as of the writing of this paper, were still quite a bit lower than what they have been pre-pandemic. Um, but seabird productivity is is coming back up. They haven't ruled out the possibility of habituation moving forward. But it's just sort of a fascinating, uh, yeah. fascinating phenomenon, such a cool way to sort of take advantage of whatever the world <laughs> serves up to you instead of allowing it to just disrupt your, your study, you actually get to ask whole new questions and, and um, find answers to questions that you maybe wouldn't have even considered before. Hmm. Yeah. I find it interesting how different white-tailed eagles react to humans compared to bald eagles, which we're familiar with here in North America. I think of bald eagles as being very comfortable around humans, especially in the you know Pacific Northwest, Alaska, famously. Even even where I live here, you know, there are multiple bald eagle nests in a lot of the reservoirs, and um, they don't seem to have any issue being around humans. But white-tailed eagles, despite being extremely similar, are quite different. Apparently, that was that was the first thing that came to my mind, and the first thing that came to my mind after that was having witnessed firsthand the explosion of Cooper's hawks. Uh, into mm. metropolitan areas and, you know, inner cities like Chicago and Milwaukee and places like that. I don't know if there's any way to prove this, but my hypothesis is that over the course of time, Cooper's Hawks were shot at everywhere they appeared because they stole people's chickens. And as the number of, you know, as the laws get stricter and the number of people keeping chickens and all of that decreases, the birds generation after generation are not killed by people with shotguns they they move into urban areas and get comfortable around people because hmm. they're not shot at and i know that like in in europe birds being shot is a huge problem much bigger than oh, in, the UK. in the well, united yeah. states that's true in the uk it's famous these game they, exactly after raptors, raptors in the uk are shot by gamekeepers all the time and I think that these birds just be are more wary because of that. Mm. It's interesting. We have in a, a no idea. enormous Cooper's hawk population in Tucson also. And there's um, some folks at the University of Arizona who've been studying it. I'll need to look into that. But that explanation, while intriguing, I'm not sure that I can uh, make that work for Tucson. So maybe maybe there's more than one possible <laughs> explanation. You know, I think it's we're seeing it. Uh, in a lot of parts in the country, but in Maine, especially the impacts of our, you know, burgeoning bald eagle popula population, which which was, of course, famously decimated by DDT in the 50s, 60s, now rebounding to, uh, you know, thousands in, in Maine. Um, it's been really interesting. There are lots of studies about the impacts, what that means to have the, those predators back in the landscape. You know, they are, uh, they predate um, offshore nesting seabirds. They predate um, uh, cormorants that nest offshore and great blue herons that nest offshore. Uh, it's a sort of a growing um, a predation on eagles, uh, uh, loon chicks. Um, mm. You know, and all of that is you know natural. You know, it's it's sort of uh, something that existed before we we meddled with everything. But it's been an interesting sort of uh, outcome from this incredible success story, conservation success story about bringing these eagles back. About what it means now in reality to have this many eagles on the on the landscape. So, Jenny, you know, getting back to what you said about Tucson, it would be interesting. I don't know if there's any numbers, but it would be interesting to see what the breeding population was in the 60s and 70s versus today. Um, because, like I said, having been here in the 70s, Cooper's Hawk was a migratory bird. It nested north of us and we got it during migration and it was not at all common. And I remember chasing the first nesting Cooper's Hawk in the Chicago area 
back then, and it was deep, deep, deep in the woods. Now we have them nesting in the local park down the street from me. Yeah, and I think these birds that migrated, you know, that, that would come through during migration, they've, they've expanded their breeding range, um, not necessarily just into urban areas, but actually south of where they were, uh, you know, 30, 40 years ago. All I know is that Cooper's Hawk, when I first started birding in the mid-90s, was a bird that we had to write up from the Christmas bird count. Like it was a quote-unquote rare yeah. bird that required like a whole write-up. And uh, remember like my very first Christmas bird count, I was a brand new birder, but only been doing it for like 10 months, maybe a year. And we, we found a Cooper's Hawk sitting on a post, which now I would think nothing of. And uh, my dad and I were like panicking because we had to like write the, write the whole thing up to document this Cooper's Hawk. Now I'm sure they get like double digits of them every Christmas bird count and that Christmas bird count in Southern Missouri. But yeah, it's funny. Well, the, the, you know, sort of the takeaway message that I'm taking from this paper is just that people are part of and not separate yeah. from the system. Yeah. Like we tend to think about you know, oh, people are coming in and ruining the system. And in some cases, mm-hmm. we are. We're <laughs> strip mining the top of the mountain away. We're <laughs> Maybe most cases, but still. <laughs> but but even, even so, you know, people are here, right? And yeah. It, right. it's, uh, yeah, we can't separate humans from birds or nature or the environment around us. Here, here. I mean, this is something I catch a lot of flack for when I say it. Um, so I'm probably going to catch some flack today. Uh, or at least when this airs, the most pristine Blackwater Creek in the most remote part of the Western Amazon is every bit as natural as Michigan Avenue in downtown Chicago. It's just very, very different. You, there's there's coyotes and all kinds of animals that have learned to adapt to this urban environment. And birds are expansionary by nature. And if given a chance, they will figure out a way and they will take advantage of whatever is presented to them. And I think about the white pelicans that have just been it just exploding in population yeah. in the Midwest, the Great Lakes and the along the Mississippi River. That's just happened in the last 15 years or so. And I'm pretty well convinced that what started it was taking advantage of a new food source in the form of the big Asian carp that were released into the Mississippi and traveled northward. And you can, you can, um, I wrote a thing about it. I think, uh, I don't forget where it was, but you can see that the, the numbers of pelicans and the numbers of carp really rise together. Um, and the places where the carp are found, suddenly the pelicans show up and I've got all kinds of pictures of pelicans herding the carp into the little dams and backwaters and the carp flying all over the place like they do. Um, so, yeah, just like the Cooper's Hawk, White Pelican, and so many others, birds will take advantage of these situations if given the opportunity and not killed. I know you've written about this before, this idea that, you know, we have this sort of Victorian era myth that uh, this perfect uh, landscape, the perfect wilderness is without humans when the fact of the matter is is that humans have been on the landscape for a millennia and like have been an integral part of how that landscape has been managed both sort of intentionally and unintentionally uh, over the lifetime of the, the world. Uh, I know that some, that's something you've written about. No, past, so. absolutely. People have been here since time immemorial and mm-hmm. the issue becomes when people aren't interacting with the environment with respect. And, mm-hmm. you know, treating it with reciprocity and looking at it as something to, to I don't know if balance is quite the right word, but things definitely get out of balance uh, often mm-hmm. as a result of human behavior. And so it's just something to, to be aware of. Like getting rid of people is not, I don't think, is <laughs> not, the, solution, the solution, but figuring yeah. out how people interact. Can we try it? Can we just give it a shot? Like in some place? <laughs> I completely agree with you. I, and we've been around forever, but we have also been causing extinctions forever. I mean, we, we caused extinction of tons of, you know, mammals, uh, large mammals in North America and South America and, and wherever, before, you know, in prehistory. And we're still doing it. And I, I, I completely agree that, you know, one of the greatest things that birding has taught me really is that there is no difference between nature and civilization at all. And I prescribe to that. But I, I do think on balance, we are causing much more harm than that sort of 
parable allows where you know Mich- michigan avenue is is not like the amazon in many many ways and i think those ways are more important than the way that, that they're similar i agree and and that that leads me to sort of um expand upon that because that's where people take what i say a, a, a little bit not in a way that i intended which is sure places like the amazon wilderness are precious and need to be protected and we're in a position to understand what we do and understand that these places need to be protected and i sometimes use leafcutter ants as an example or elephants both of which cause massive damage and change the landscape in ways that you know just massively but on a different scale than we do but the amount of destruction that elephants and leafcutter ants cause is gigantic in proportion to their size just the way it is for us um but we're smart enough to know what we're doing and when to stop it and the challenge is getting the bulk of the population or enough to understand that and stop it when it needs to be and i think the challenge is also like that word protect is a loaded word for me because uh, certainly in the North American context, often what that means is like this needs to be preserved as a national park or, a, you know, we need to keep people out or control the way that people use this. And often the people that are the most impacted by those decisions are those who are uh, the most marginalized and have uh, the least um, recourse and whose lives are going to be the most impacted by that very act and who are, in fact, having the least negative impact on those lands. Um, Absolutely. And so it's, it's tricky. And, the, you know, the work I did in the 80s with Rainforest Conservation Fund in the Western Amazon was kind of where I had that epiphany. We worked with the, 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 the most marginalized people on the small rivers um, and helped put in place uh, sustainable agriculture schemes using native plants. And what we found long-term was that, you know, they cut down the forest and they'd plant their chakras and they'd plant native fruit-bearing trees and things in succession so that they didn't have to travel as far into the forest to get it. And they didn't have to risk breaking their legs or getting lost or whatever. Um, but then down the road, this grew up into mature forest with a higher concentration of fruit and other things. And the, the wildlife populations came back in and came back in at higher concentrations than existed there before. It's the topic of our time, I think. You know, I, you, you, Greg, you said that you, you think we have recognized what we've done and can stop it. I mean, I think that's, I don't know if I agree with that. You know, I, I think we are, it, our human collectively effect on the landscape is dawning on us now, and we certainly are understanding it more than we did in, in decades past. But I like, said we have the ability to. <laughs> Okay. Whereas ants and elephants don't. Whether we act on that or, you know, I said we have the ability to understand what we're doing in a way that elephants and ants don't. Right. I, I hope we recognize, you know, uh, act on that ability. I mean, that's that's everything, really. That's that's everything in front of us. That's everything in front of us. And it and it affects us as much as anything else. I mean, as, as go as go the the birds, we follow along. I mean, that's eventually, eventually. All right. Speaking of following along, let's move on to the question of the month. Um, great conversations. Thank you to all of you. Let's take it in a slightly lighter direction. It is it is September for those of us in well, all over the continent. It is peak migration period for warblers. Everyone loves warblers in the spring. People are less enamored with warblers in the fall. I think they've gotten some bad press. Thank you, Roger Tory Peterson. Um, I he, I understand why he probably wasn't looking at him through good binoculars. Boy, that really sticks in your craw. The whole confusing fall it's, warblers. It's a thing. Confusing fall warblers. I think it sets up people to fail. They need to. You they are need right. Positive interaction with the warblers, and I think most most of the time you get it. Granted, there are what word, that are weird. What anyway, word would you say instead of confusing? Like uh, I would say uh, challenging. Okay, is that better? Sure. Does that put the Does that put the onus on the birder? To accept the challenge rather than to accept confusion? Sure. It, it helps. It steps it back. Could it just be fall warblers? Why does it have to be? Yeah, maybe just fall warblers. Sure. Thank you. Why do they need an adjective? Exactly. Why do we even need to go there? Anyway, this gives me to a question. Uh, everyone's got their favorite fall warbler. I want to know from you, what is your most overrated fall warbler? The one that gets too much press. 
What is your most underrated fall warbler? Or, you know, one or the other. You don't have to do both, but one or the other. Overrated, underrated fall warblers. This is your opportunity for some very hot takes in the warbler world that, um, you know, a lot of people are going to get up in arms about, much more so than anything else we've talked about here. Uh, this, is, this is the hot stuff right here. Your warbler takes. Overrated, underrated fall oh, no. warblers. Overrated? What? What? Uh... How is such a yeah. thing possible? Yeah, what's okay. an overrated right. one? What do you do? You guys um, have one. What are you doing here, Swick? Uh, overrated fall warbler. I'll like, I'll, I'll take bait. I'll take the bait that I've yeah, laid yeah. for my the trap that I've laid for myself. Um, overrated fall warbler, Blackburnian. Little overrated. Tony, it's not it's not my favorite of the fall world. And that's not true. Really? Really? You're <laughs> going to get so you're I can't even so pretend. I can't even convincingly pretend. <laughs> no, it's, it's a nice, that's a nice warbler that they got. And I understand why they're very excited. There aren't very many, there aren't enough orange warblers uh, is the thing. There's way too much yellow, uh, not enough orange in the warbler. World. Yeah. I think it's almost yeah. underrated overall. I think it gets lost in yeah. the shuffle sometimes. It's so crazy yeah. when you see it, how orange that is. And we've, we, you're right. Yeah. We got yellow. We got yellow covered. We got the spectrum Everything's of yellow. yellow. Give me yellow. some more orange. Yeah. Oh, I got one. Go. Connecticut warbler. Overrated. Ooh. I've never seen, it's boring. Never it's seen boring one. Looking. I've never seen it one in my life. For, for, all the, for all the work that you have to put in to find a fall Connecticut warbler in most of the, you know, Central Park notwithstanding, they, they trip over them there. <laughs> but, um, it's 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 a lot of work for a warbler that's not all that appealing visually. <laughs> Poor. Uh, you can tell my heart's not really in this. My heart's not really yeah, in this. You're getting letters. Yeah. <laughs> my favorite. My one, favorite follower. One star reviews incoming. <laughs> my favorite. I, I guess I can't say. I, I wasn't thinking of this in the overrated and underrated frame. I apologize. I was thinking favorites. Um, my favorite <laughs> is the aforementioned magnolia warbler. Um, yeah, with that little ghost necklace there, I think that's just like a cool uh, feature that it makes it sort of easily identifiable, but also um, a cool just reversal from the breeding plumage in terms of it yeah. like a, being a sunburn sort of thing. Um, I don't know, is that overrated or underrated? I don't know. I feel like it's pretty well rated. If you ask the people in the UK right now, it's it's pretty highly rated. I guess. I don't know. <laughs> I think flamingos are overrated because I can go to any golf course in South Florida and see all I want. Kind of wrapping in Go golf zoo, courses man. and flamingos and anyway. Um, well, I don't know how you over or under on fall warblers. I just, I, I mean, the whole time you're talking, I'm thinking about okay, how can I possibly like say something even partially witty or it's just I can't come up with a thing because Connecticut <laughs> warbler, oh, boy. Come on, come on! How how are we feeling about the yearly uh, bay-breasted blackpole debate? Is that fun or no? Are we tired of doing that. I, I think bay-breasted is the better warbler, just generally speaking, and I think that's an underrated one. I think it's underrated too. When you I, get a little glimpse of that little smudge down there, you're feeling kind of apricot, feeling fine, really nice. Yeah. Well, I was just gonna say the. So I was talking with a friend last month. I guess he had gone out birding like mid-August and said we saw 14 species of warblers, and I was like. Holy crap! Pretty good. Tucson, that's yeah. a lot of warblers. And uh, yeah, no I, I tried. He didn't tell me what they were, and I was trying to guess all of them, and I got I got pretty close. Um, but the, the when I was trying to think, I struggled too with overrated, underrated. <laughs> but I'm gonna go for the most underrated fall warbler. I'm gonna go with chestnut sided. All right. Yeah. Because here's okay. why: like the a breeding male plumage chestnut sided warblers. Like holy crap, that is. A striking bird and the fall plumage it's like it's wearing camouflage or something like the key characteristics are still there or you might see just like a tiny little bit yeah um but it's it's just it's hiding yeah they're very cute in the fall they are cute in the fall i agree i mean the eye ring if you're talking about underrated fall warblers what about like oven bird or like a water thrush, like a bird that isn't I any was different. Thinking, I was thinking Louisiana <laughs> water thrush. Yeah, it never gets in the conversation of confusing fall warblers. And partially because they're not really fall warblers, they exit by the end of August. So yeah, they're like, <laughs> late summer warblers. Nobody yeah. about them in the fall. Yeah. Except for, the only people that are getting them in September is, right uh, yeah, exactly, California. That's the only place you can find a Louisiana water thrush in, in uh, September. Yeah. <laughs> north, of, uh, north of Mexico, yeah. I would say. Yeah, um, they're gone. Overrated fall warbler, boy. Still having trouble I with that. I can't think of anyone that's overrated. Of overrating a warbler. I, Every, everyone's appropriately rated? 
We have to go through all the warblers and, and rate them appropriately. <laughs> it's, it's all situational. Like I had like 12 pine warblers in my yard today. And at number like 11, I was like, this is kind of overrated. I'm kind of ready for, for someone else. And so, you know, just like <laughs> any an other any other bird. coming on that one. <laughs> just like any other bird. Uh, it's like, you know, the most underrated one is whatever one you haven't seen in a while or seen yet. Yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. All right. Yeah. Well, you, you've all successfully dodged the question, and, and while I went on the while I went on the spot, uh, but I'll take the heat. That's that's part of being the host. That's part I of being. I do the think host. that the that the bay breasted versus black pole um, challenge is underrated because underrated. Yeah, because okay. there's a lot of there's a lot of subtlety going on there, and you know, you you, right. you guys went immediately for um, the smudge on the flank. And, you know, that, that sort of peachy color. But when you really look at those two, they're very different. But yet they look it, – it's, it's, it's an interesting conundrum because, Nate, you and I do this on What's This Bird all the time where we yeah. get one or the other. And there's, there's the bill shape. There's the, the brightness of the wing bars. There's the brightness of the green, especially on the head of the bay-breasted. And it's like you could not see the underparts of either one of them um, and still identify them. And would you say that you can get 90 to 95% of the species pair pegged correctly? I think if from photographs, I think if, if the photographs are good, um, yeah, you know, as we always say, the challenge with, with photographs or single photographs is, you know, you're, you're, you're filling in a lot of what you're seeing, but, um, yeah, well, but I think it's, true. I think yeah. it's, um, it's, it's just a, it's an interesting ID challenge because I don't think it's, as difficult as it's portrayed. I'd say the same for Orange Crown, Tennessee. As yes, well. yes. And then there's there's the whole um, Magnolia, or I'm sorry, not Magnolia, Cape May versus everything else. It's like you get a really good look um, at a Cape May warbler's face. That bill is unique, and yeah. it's it's you know, but yeah, again, it, it requires a really good look. The Cape May pine is one that gets you know hmm. i would expect I oh would yeah expect especially 12, when you're looking I would expect 12 feet up in a pine tree warblers yeah. in nick's yard rather rather than 12 pine warblers so come on yeah. over you can check them out i they were pines <laughs> i would love to i've never been to maine pines indeed. i have had kate may in my little yard but not today soon they're a late they're yeah. a late one at least in my book still got time where that where i am they i heard they migrate they migrate on the backs of flamingos i think I, well, then we'll get them uh, at any moment now, uh, before too long. Oh, good. <laughs> anytime, well, then they'll anytime. find their way home. Yeah, exactly. That's what they should do. They sh- that's what they should do with the Pennsylvania flamingo. They should put it on the back of a Cape May warbler. Or, or just put a Cape May warbler on the back of a flamingo and it tells it where to go. Because <laughs> it rides it. It's exactly. a little like a never ending story. Are problem solvers at the ABA. I respect yeah, that about you. I think so. That's right. That's what yeah. we do. <laughs> well, uh, thank you so much to all three of you for joining me uh nick lund jenny duberstein and greg niece at last moment this was great great conversation even though uh i couldn't pin you down on uh, overrated warblers um fair enough there are no overrated warblers they're all they're all appropriately rated or underrated that's us it was just the way it goes links to all the things that we talked about in the show notes please check them out links to all these folks uh, social media feeds wherever you can find them though that is getting harder and harder to find exactly where people can be found these days but in any case we'll do our best and you can find them there and we'll we'll have you all back at some point in the not too distant future um thank you to all three of you good birding enjoy the rest of your fall chase some flamingos if they come by will do thanks for having me right on The American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. If you enjoy this podcast, the best way to support it is to join the ABA. You get a lot of great benefits, including our magazines, discounts to partners like Princeton University Press, Cornell Lab of Ornithology, Beauty of Books, and more. You can find out how to do all of it at aba.org slash join. I have some special shout outs this week to make to Megan Catalanato of Cortland Manor, New York, Kara Geshu of Silver Spring, Maryland, and Hannah Salvatore of Robesonia, Pennsylvania, all of whom recently joined the ABA, noted the podcast as the reason for doing so. Thank you so much for that. Welcome to the ABA. 
executive director of the ABA and executive producer of the podcast is Wayne Klockner, who is somewhat frustrated that his order of Welsh rarebit was misinterpreted as Welsh rarebird and turned into a magnolia warbler near Swansea. Tactical production is by John Lowry, who's a little surprised that UK birders haven't yet added a superfluous U to Bobolink. Additional help comes from Maggie Fitzgibbon and Greg Neese, who note that this might actually be the closest a Blackburnian warbler has ever been to the actual home of its namesake, Anna Blackburn. That's not a joke. That's just an interesting observation. You can find us online at ABA.org and on social media most everywhere is American Birding Association. But on Blue Sky, we are at ABA Birds. The famous Migratory Bird Treaty Act. The famous Migratory Bird Treaty, eventually the Migratory Bird Treaty Act, was signed in 1916 by the U.S. and Great Britain acting on behalf of Canada, which had not yet gained full independence, though it was self-governing. It's, it's complicated. In any case, as the MBTA is one of the most influential and important environmental laws in all three nations' histories, consider this payment in full for your help. Most of those birds probably came from eastern Canada anyway. Questions, comments, can come to podcast.eba.org. I'm Nate Swick. Thanks for listening. Bird Like Tom, we'll see you next week.